0: Good morning, Valley Bible Church, and uh, good morning to all of those of you who have tuned in and are listening to us this morning. We're glad to see you, glad that we are being seen by you this morning, and thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, we're going to continue this week uh, with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, and um, the topic of the verses we're going to be looking at, basically this, true worship. And so I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, uh, whatever version you have or uh, form of the scriptures. We're going to read chapter 4 of John, verses 20 through 26. And even though we're not all here together, it is our practice that when we read God's Word, uh, that we give attention to the public reading of God's Word. And we do so in the same way that uh, they did in the Old Testament when when the book was opened, The people stood and they said, amen, amen. So I invite you, even in the comfort of your home, to stand up as we read God's word, John chapter 4, verses 20 through 26. The word of God. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And God's people said, Amen. You can sit down now. And I'd like you to to pray with me. We do praise you this morning. We worship you this morning, Father. We recognize that you are a great and mighty God. We thank you that you have control over the nations, kingdoms, and presidents, governors, and mayors. And you have control over our lives. You have control over the weather, and you have control over disease. And we thank you that in your providential care, you are working out your plan just as it is. And we trust in you and ask that we might learn many lessons in these days that you would be glorified and that we would grow in our understanding of you and in godliness and in righteousness. These things we pray all in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're in John chapter four, and we're talking about the story of um, the Samaritan woman at the well and her meeting with Jesus. Uh, all told it's going to take us four weeks to get through this portion. Um, last week, we saw the first part of the story where Jesus talks to the woman, they talk about drinking water unto eternal life. And now the subject this morning is, is going to talk uh, to, to turn to true worship. And that is going to be the heart of the matter for this woman, which is part of what eternal life is all about. Then we're going to see how the disciples respond to this because there's going to be some fallout when they come back and a conversation that ensues. And then finally, in a couple of weeks, we'll see how um, this woman responded to this react, this this time with Jesus. How did it change her life? Indeed, it did. And to change the lives of many other people as well. So we've got a lot to to look at in the coming weeks. And this morning we continue to to see this conversation between Jesus and uh, this Samaritan woman. Um, This is unique to John's gospel. Um, You don't see this in the other gospels where Jesus sits down with someone and has an individual conversation with them. And uh, there are a couple places in John's gospel where this takes place. Obviously, the story of Nicodemus, very similar to this. In fact, I really appreciate the question from last week's Life Group uh, questions. How do these compare and how are they different? They're really very, very quite similar, and we'll draw some of that out today. But it's unique to the gospel, and, and it teaches us how we can relate to people, individuals, even strangers, to try and, and uh, turn conversations towards spiritual things, because that's why God has placed us here. Um, I'm attempting to do that in uh, in my own awkward way. Uh, I was out in the in my neighborhood yesterday, and uh, came upon a man who was in his front yard, and he was kneeling down, and he was digging in the yard. And I stopped to talk to him, and at 93 years old, and... Uh, I uh, was still working in his lawn. He had a beautiful lawn. I was asking him how he got it so green, and he gave me some tips. But uh, it's always fun to talk to someone of that age because they have these little sayings, you know, that you've never heard of before. And we got talking about the pandemic and what's going to happen. And and he says, uh, well, pretty soon we'll find out whether the hog bit, bit the cabbage. And I thought, the hog bit the cabbage. And Okay, we'll find out what's evident here. yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that one? I'd never heard of that one before at all. But anyway, I tried to turn things around to spiritual things, and uh, I was talking about how God was in control, and that reminded him of something. He was down on his knees, and he says, as you get older, and I was thinking, I think I am getting older, but he's 93, much older than me. But he says, when you're in your older years, he says, you need to learn to multitask. I said, okay, in what way? He says, well, you see, I'm down here, I'm on my knees, and I'm working in the yard, and I'm praying that I'll be able to get up. And so learning how to multitask. So he turned it around on me a little bit as well. But That is what this passage is all about, being on our knees, worshiping God, worshiping him, the, the true God. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning in the first four verses uh, not the first four verses, the first three verses, rather, is that true worship is about the true God. True worship is about the true God. Look at these verses, and I want you to look at them. They're on the screen, um, but I want you to count how many times the word worship appears there. And, uh, for instance, I don't know what's on the children's bulletin, but kids, you can count and maybe underline how many times you see the word worship in these three verses And then look ahead and see how many times the word worship appears in our entire passage of verses 21 through 26. But in verses 20 through 22, she begins with this. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, what is she talking about? There was great animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. We talked about that last week. For Jesus to even talk to this woman, considered it a half-breed, but also a woman considered unclean and probably an outcast in her own uh, her own Samaritan community, because she had been married so many times, evidenced by the fact that she shows up to get water by herself without the rest of the ladies from the village. And pretty soon, Jesus says to her, "Go call your husband." And I'm sure she's thinking, I'm not sure, but I'm wondering if she's thinking. Here we go, this thing that always follows me around. And she, she turns the, the conversation. We don't know whether she's changing the subject or the fact that she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. She recognizes that he has looked into her life with this penetrating gaze, and he sees all about her. And he says, right, you don't have a husband. You've had five, and you're living with someone right now. And her next words are, I perceive that you are a prophet. It could be either she's changing the subject or perceiving that he's a prophet. She's really interested. You see, there was this age-old um, controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews about where the proper place of worship was. Where do we worship? Um, the Samaritans were excluded from the rebuilding of the temple. When the Jews came back into the land from captivity. In 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, where they're at. In 128 BC, that temple was torn down by the Jews. And so you can see that they're animosity, the acrimony between them goes way, way deep over many, many things. And here is a controversy. Perhaps he's thinking well you're a prophet, maybe you can settle this riddle for me that there's always ongoing controversy about. Where is the proper place of worship? Samaritan fathers say on this mountain Gerizim, but the Jews say Jerusalem is the place. Notice his answer to her. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming. Let me just pause right there. Uh, These words sound familiar. This is the same way that Jesus uh, uh, addressed his mother in John uh, chapter 2 regarding uh, the, the wedding at Cana and turning the water into wine. Remember, she said to him, Jesus, you need to do something. And he said to her, woman, my hour has not come. And we saw at that time that the hour coming was a technical term for the, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, the actual redemption of Jesus. That hour is upon them, he's going to say in a minute, but he's telling her something has changed. It's not about location. Location is irrelevant. Because both of them, the Samaritans and the Jews, had made it at about location. And it wasn't about location. Location. He says, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He said, you're both wrong. No one is right. Neither of you are right. This people, he would say elsewhere, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far far from me. They went through the motions of the rituals, and they did uh, all um, all the outward trappings of worship, but their hearts were not there. Jesus cleared the temple, the place of worship. And Jesus says very clearly in verse 21, the father is the object of worship, not them and not the location. It's not about a place. They've got it all wrong. I think at this point, it's important for us to stop and talk about the word worship, because um, did you count how many times? five times in these three verses the word worship or a form of it is used and how many did you get for the entire passage right 10 10 times this passage is all also about worship now the word worship that he uses here is the greek word proskuneo it is a compound word pros means before kuneo means to kiss so it means literally to kiss toward ...or to kiss before. And no, it does not mean to blow Jesus a kiss. It doesn't mean that. I know some wag has probably said that at some time... ...but that is not what it means. So the the Greek word means to kiss toward. The Hebrew word, shakha, means to bow down... ...to prostrate oneself before, to be brought low in humility. So we have these two different physical word pictures... ...of kissing toward... And bowing down. And how do they come together to give us a meaning of worship? Proskuneo, to kiss toward, was used of someone falling prostrate at the, the feet of a king, a magistrate, someone who was their better, kissing the ground that they walked upon, kissing the hem of their garment, recognizing that they were superior to them in an act of submission Recognizing that they had uh, authority over them. And the Hebrew word of bowing down is the same idea. To be brought low in humility. And both of these contain this element of recognizing respect for someone who is greater than you. In authority. And therefore we are in submission to them. And this is a declaration of our place before them which is lowly and humble. And it is right for us to submit to them. And so the worship of God is all that. It is not going through the motions of formal worship, of going to worship at Valley Bible Church, of doing uh, all the things that they were doing in the temple because that's what they had made it. It's about the place. It's about the ritual. But he says it's about the Father, worshiping the Father. And then he goes on to say this in verse 22 You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You worship in ignorance. This reminds us of uh, Paul at Mars Hill when he says, "You, You worship a false God in ignorance. I see you've got a statue here, this unknown God that you worship in ignorance. You don't even know what you're talking about, you don't have the facts. You don't have the truth. And and neither do the Samaritans. They don't. They're not worshiping properly. He, he, now he did say it's not about Jerusalem and it's not about there. Because at this time God was not accepting any of their worship. But it is true that Jerusalem is the right place. Theologically. He, ta- he is talking, therefore, about false worship. You worship falsely. If there's false worship, then there is true worship, and that is what he's getting at here. It's not about location; it's about false worship versus true worship. So Jesus ties worship to truth. Jesus tri- ties worship to um, to Israel, and he also ties salvation to worship. I think that's a, a an often missed important part of this passage worship is much more than religious duty worship is the very heart and essence of our salvation that we are worshipers not worship attenders we are worshipers that is the identity of our lives Abraham was a worshiper if you go back this is how Jesus is saying, yes, worship is, uh, is from the Jews. Abraham was a worshiper. God called him and he said, I will make you a great nation and I will give you the land. And uh, out of this nation will come the Messiah who will bless all people. And so as Abraham went around, he always built an altar. He was a believer. He was saved by grace through faith. Uh, righteousness was credited to him. But he also recognized that he was a sinner. And that to approach a holy God, he had to offer an atoning sacrifice for his sin. And so Abraham was a worshiper. And he was anticipating the day when God would grow this nation and set up this nation and fulfill the promise of the nation. And when did that happen? The nation Israel was birthed in slavery in Egypt. And God redeemed the nation Israel and he brought them out and he judged the gods of Egypt and he brings them out of the middle of the the desert after their redemption and he gives them the charter of their nationhood, which is the law. And it begins with the Ten Commandments. And here's the point I want to make about that. The Bible does not present believers over against unbelievers The Bible talks about worshiping a true God or worshiping a false God. Do you get that? There are only two kinds of people in this world those who worship the true God and those who worship a false God. So when he gave them the Ten Commandments, the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me, little g, plural. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship, bow down or serve them. Some people say, well, see, they recognize that they that God is saying that there are other gods in the world and that 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 he's just one of many gods. That is not the case. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship them or serve them. There is only one God. The Bible teaches it very, very clearly. I just gave to you, you know, half a dozen or more um, uh, verses, and there are many, many more. Uh, Isaiah 44.6, Deuteronomy 4.35, 1 Kings 8.60, 1 Timothy 2.5-6, 2, James 2.19, Isaiah 43.11. Read Isaiah 43-50 through 50 or so, and you'll see over and over and over and over again, there is no God besides me. There is only one God. So what are these gods, he says? They're idols. They're not real gods. They're idols. When David brings the ark finally, after many, many years, back to Jerusalem, and they built a tent for it, and they have this wonderful worship service, and Asaph gives this psalm, and he says this, Tell of his glory among the nations you can read all about it in 1st Chronicles 16 Tell of his glory among the nations his wonderful deeds among all the peoples for great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised praise is a word a synonym for worship he is also to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are idols they're not gods they're false idols but the Lord made the heavens, he, he says. The Lord made the heavens. There is only one creator God who is absolute in all things. And he is personal. And he is over all things. And everything else is God making idols and making God in his image. Everyone worships something or someone. Everyone does. There are no atheists. Said this a couple of weeks ago, a quote from Ronald Nash If we understand that a person's God is to be that which is one's ultimate concern, then there really is no such thing as an atheist. The thing that takes place of God, when we lower him and we make him lesser and we worship lesser gods, we replace him with something else with a small g. And we are to kiss toward and bow down before him and show our allegiance and our submission and our affection and our attention. And if our affection and our attention and our energy and our allegiance and submission is to something other than God, guess what, folks? It is an idol. And we are idolaters. Is it possible for Christians to be Idolaters for Christians to be idol worshipers uh, I think so. I've been thinking about this in my own life. I hope you'll think about it for yours. Um, in In the book of First John, one of the things that J- uh, John says in his in his epistle, um, the same writer here, in chapter two, he says, "Do not love the world or the things of the world." All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, it's passing away. It's not of the Father. Don't love those things. Don't worship those things. And at the the very end of the book, the last thing that he says, some people think it is enigmatic, and I do not think it so at all. It makes perfect sense. The last thing that he says is this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. From loving something and serving something above the one true absolute personal God, Yahweh, the Creator God of the universe. I want you to think for a moment, get ready, okay, put your still toes on. <laughs> you might want to put your waiters on, maybe even your hip waiters or your chest waiters. because uh, this could be a little personal for us. And I don't mean it just for you personally, but for us as a world. In terms of what is going on right now, I read something this week. um, A writer says, when when an individual uh, gets an illness, we call that a trial. But when something horrific happens to the entire planet, what do we call that? Probably judgment. Probably judgment. I think there are a lot of theologians, unfortunately... Who are practical deists? Deism is the idea that God just made the world like a clock, He wound it up and He's just letting it go. And there are some who, who would uh, modify that to say, yes, He created the world. And uh, during the Bible times, He was very active. But now all the, all the things that we see are, are just the natural consequences of sin, like plagues. No, God is sovereign in all things happen under his purview his providential purposes in life and to think that what's happening right now has no purpose we would be silly to think about that particularly as believers who believe in a sovereign god who is who is alive and active and working in this world so let me let me say some things that have happened in this world stadiums are closed Arenas are closed. Have we lost our gods? We didn't get to worship the Zags this year. We're going to get to worship the Seahawks. I I know that you can enjoy the Zags and the Seahawks. I'm just saying, is it possible that some make idols of sports and sports figures? Our theaters are closed. We're not able to worship at the altar of Hollywood and our, our, the stars. And, and, of course, the superheroes are much more uh, real with the, the, on the big screen and with the sound systems. Do we worship our superheroes? Schools are closed. For those of you who are, who are you? kids, you know, you miss your friends. Are they more important to you than God? You miss the school lunches. You have your favorites that you go to. For some of you, you're going to miss Graduation. Has that, all those things, the the trappings of your senior year, is that more important to you than the God we worship? Finals? No, you're not missing finals, of course, no. Our economy is closed. Jesus said you cannot worship God and money. Basically, he said that. You'll worship one and you'll hate the other. You can't serve them both. Do we worship the almighty dollar? Our rivers, our lakes, our forests are closed to fishing and hunting. And now it's getting personal for me. Do we make idols of our leisure time? The golf courses are closed. Are all of those things that are important to us, are they more important than God? The gyms are closed. Have we made an idol of fitness and health and youth and beauty in our culture? Absolutely, we have. And then, of course, some of our liberties are being impinged upon. I believe they are in some degree. And so we want to push back. I believe in the Constitution, but but do we believe in the Constitution and the laws of man more than we believe in the laws of God? Do we have some ideal idea of liberty that we worship versus worshiping the liberty that we have and the freedom that we have in Christ? Our jobs, we can't go to work. Some of you are worshiping at home today because you've been working at home and you're busier than ever. Some of you get to go to, to work. But shouldn't we think about our jobs, our careers? Has it become more important To us, isn't this time a time to reevaluate where we're at? Think about our houses. We're spending much more time at home, and houses are very important to us in America. It's an American dream, and now maybe you're getting a little tired of it. It's almost like the manna that God gave the Israelites and coming out of their nostrils, and I just want to get out of the house, right? But have we made worship these things? Have we made our lives these things? We're separated from our families. Families are important. We've said that. But is it possible to worship your children? Children, is it possible for you to worship your parents? To see them as more important than God? You know my heart on this. Jesus said, basically, you have to hate your father and mother if you're going to follow me. He didn't mean despise that. And I've said this many times. What he's really saying is this. If you want to love your spouse and children and brother and sister, if you want to love them the best, you must love God most. The greatest enjoyment of all of these things and fishing and hunting and and fitness and and money and stadiums and all these things is when we put God first, when we're worshiping him, then we enjoy these things. And we see them in their proper place. But is it possible we've gotten out of kilter? Here's the last one I'll bring up to you. Our church buildings are closed. It's not about location, is it? You can worship at home. And yes, we want to get back and we want to be together together. We want to be back at 3021 South Sullivan Road, but this is a building. We can't make an idol of our our building and our budget and our programs and celebrity pastors in our our culture. And perhaps this is a good time for all of us to reflect and, and renew what is worship all about. It is about the Father worshiping Him. So here is a lesson and an application. The lesson is this. True worshipers worship the true God. True worshipers worship the true God. This is about false worship versus true worship. And true worshipers worship the true God. The God of the Bible the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way he has made himself known, he must come first in our lives. And the application following this lesson is this, ask God in prayer. Go to him sometime this week in prayer, and and let's make use of what's going on around us and ask this question, God, would you reveal any idol's in my life, that this pandemic exposes. It's a great time for us to go through all all of those things and think about sports and leisure activities and hobbies and our family and our money and our homes and all of it. How does it fit underneath the worship of God? Because it must be underneath the worship of God. And I think if we ask that question honestly, we're going to get an honest answer from a true God. He's going to draw us, and he forgives us. He patches us up, and he reveals even more truth when we bow down to him and recognize him above all things. So true worship is about the true God then we see in verses 23 through 24 that true worshipers worship truly true worshipers worship truly it says in verses 23 and 24 but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such people the father seeks to be his worshipers God is spirit And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. First thing we see is that the true location of worship has changed. Jesus says, but an hour is coming. He already said that to her a minute ago. Seconds in the conversation. But an hour is coming and now is And now is, time is upon them right now that the location of worship is changing. It's now. He was, remember when he was talking to his mother, he said, my hour hasn't come. And part of the point was there was something that was changing in his relationship with his mother. And now he is saying there is something that is changing in the idea of worship, uh, your relationship to God. Something has changed. You know what that something has changed is? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Father, of the Father. The Word is here, and the Word dwelt among us is the Word tabernacled. The place of worship is here in the person of Jesus Christ. See, he goes further and he says that he was going to dwell in their midst. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will he worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But it gets better. Not only did Jesus come to the earth, he now lives in us this is the place of worship. This is the place of worship. This is the place of worship. And when we come together, he is in our midst because he is in us. It's not about the location and the ritual and all of those things. It is about the truth of Jesus Christ. The spirit dwells in us. The spirit dwells in us. When you think about uh, um what happened at the end of um, the book of Exodus. At the end of the book of Exodus, remember they had the uh, the, um, the tabernacle set up and the, the spirit of God came, the glory of God came and he dwelt among them. It was his means of making them his people and he was going to live amongst them. Now he is living amongst them by taking on human flesh And then he lives amongst the world by living in us. So the true location of worship that has changed it as at that point in the person of Jesus Christ. And it still is. Second, true worship is based on God's revealed truth. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. Truth. What is the truth? Truth has been revealed to us. How has the truth been revealed to us? Truth is revealed in God's word. Truth is revealed in God's son. Truth is revealed through his spirit. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 17, verse 17, all in the book of John... He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. He's praying for us. And he said, your word is truth. In chapter 16, verse 13, he he says to his disciples, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you, whatever is to come. The spirit of truth. The Word of Truth. Jesus, the truth. That is how God has revealed Himself. And so true worship corresponds to God's true nature, how He has revealed Himself as being Spirit. And the reason God must be worshiped in Spirit is because He is Spirit. That doesn't mean that He's just all spiritual, but that's how, as part of the corresponding nature in which we approach Him. He's not just spirit, but he's also love. God is spirit. God is love. God is truth. God is life. God is holy. God is spirit. And so our worship of him must correspond with all of those things. He is truth. Therefore, worship is in spirit and in truth. It is a divine necessity. You must worship this way, he says. It must be this way. There is no real worship unless it corresponds to this reality of truth that has been revealed about Christ. All other worship is false. So true worship, the true location of worship has changed. True worship is based on God's revealed truth. And true worshipers are those who receive new life by the Spirit. Now, this is where it gets down to his conversation with the woman. Remember, he said to her, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she says, give me that water like like Nicodemus, she misunderstood. I thought you're talking about going back into my mother's womb. And she's, she thinks he's talking about giving some kind of special water. But at the same time, for both of them, I think the Spirit of God is pulling them toward the truth of understanding and creating a thirst in their heart for righteousness. Righteousness. So, as it says in John 7, 37, Jesus says this. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's talking to this woman. If you're thirsty, come and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He said that to the woman. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. John 3 about being born again in Nicodemus. John 4 about uh, rivers of living water and true worship. They are the same thing. It is the Holy Spirit who imparts life to those who respond. So if we were to go back to the very beginning where he says, Woman, believe me. He's he's saying a lot more than just saying, You need to listen to what I'm saying. He's saying you need to listen to the truth of what I'm saying, because the truth of what I'm saying will lead to the truth of who I am. And everything that is written in this book was written so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when he says, Woman, believe me, In the imperative, he's saying, I'm going to lead you in truth that you might come to believe in me. And that is what is happening at this moment. Her thirst will be quenched. And so is ours. It's about salvation. So here are a couple of lessons. First is this. God the Father desires that you worship him. And that you worship him truly. Isn't that a fantastic statement? For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He is looking. The eyes of the Lord rove to and fro throughout the world for him to find those whose heart is, to support those whose heart is completely his. He said in 1 Chronicles, I think it was also. God is looking for people to worship him. That is his desire for you to fall before him. It is his desire for you to worship him truly, to see him as he is, to lift him up, to kiss the hems of his garment, recognizing he is the sovereign. What a fantastic thing that he desires that of you and of me, and he's looking for that. Second lesson is... To recognize this, that the contrast is not between physical worship, location, and spiritual worship, but between false worship and true worship. That's what he's talking about. See, I think a lot of people misread this whole passage. And what they say is, oh, he's talking about location in the temple. So it's about the physical. But he says worship is about the spirit. So God isn't concerned with the physical. He's concerned with the spiritual. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from Christians' lips over 30-plus years of ministry. God is not concerned with the physical. He is only concerned with the spiritual. And when they say that, people are unwittingly saying something, parroting something that is ancient philosophy of the Greeks, platonic dualism. Matter is evil. Spirit is good. Christians think that way. God doesn't care about the building. He doesn't care about my body. He doesn't care if I eat or overeat. He doesn't care about what I drink. He doesn't care about what I do. Whether I sing or I don't sing, whether I bow or whether I don't bow. All he cares about is my heart attitude. And people misquote the the verse that says, Man looks out on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and see, God doesn't care about the outward appearance but God cares about all of it. You have been redeemed. Your body has been redeemed. You see, there are a couple of kinds of worship. There's corporate worship, where we, this is what we normally think about when we come together and we sing, and, we're, and, and, and that is something corporate worship is described. It is uh, commanded. It is regulated. It is recorded throughout the scriptures. It is important. Do not forsake your assembling together. But it is a phys- physical thing that we come together as people. Corporate worship is of the highest importance. It is to be protected and promulgated at all costs. For this is the time with one accord we, we give glory to God with one voice. But there's also individual worship. Individual worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know the verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and, and, and perfect. We worship in our bodies Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will our bodies be raised from the dead. Our bodies are redeemed, and so it does matter what we do in our bodies. We present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. We've been bought with a price. We offer up the sacrifice of praise with the fruit of lips. We are living stones offering spiritual sacrifices. We are living our life for Christ and living your life for Jesus Christ is the highest form of worship, not just going to church. And corporate worship is kinetic, isn't it? It is in our bodies. Stand up, sit down, bow your head, bow your knees, raise your hands, shout, sing, say amen, give you an offering, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. These are all physical manifestations of, wor- of worshiping in our bodies. By the way, next week we are going to have communion again, so prepare your elements for next Sunday. So there are many kinds of worship. There's corporal worship and individual worship, but God is interested in us worshiping in these bodies together and individually. True worship is about the true God. True worshipers worship truly. And then in verses 25 through 26, true worshipers worship the true Messiah. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they did believe in an eschatological figure, someone coming in the end of the age who would restore things, whom they called Tahib. That was their idea of the Messiah. She may have a little more understanding. We don't know because she uses the word Messiah instead of Tahib. But she says when that Messiah comes, that one, he will declare all things to us. This is in response to the whole idea of truth. Spirit and in truth, God revealing himself. He is spirit. He reveals himself in all of these ways. This is the truth by which we worship. Her thirst is growing. She wants more. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word he doesn't appear there in the the Greek. It just literally says, I who speak to you I am. I am. Remember when we started and gave an overview of the book of John? We went through all the I am statements. Probably the most uh, um, important one is in chapter eight, when when um, Jesus says to the to the Pharisees, "Before Abraham was was born, I am," and they understood that he was claiming to be Yahweh. Ego, Emi, is the Greek equivalent of the, the Hebrew uh, verb to be. When God uh, appeared to, 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 to Moses in the wilderness at the build, uh, burning bush, and he said, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. I just am. And that's what he says to this woman. I am. He reveals himself to be the Messiah God. Not just Messiah, but the very God of the very God. Whether she understood all of this at this moment, we don't know. But that is indeed what he says and what he means. Thus, we must true worship the true God through the Holy Spirit by the true Messiah. For the woman, first she sees him as a, as a Jew, and, and then she sees him as something maybe greater than Jacob. Then she sees him as a prophet. I perceive you're a prophet. And finally, she sees him as the Messiah who says to her, I'm God. I am. I am the Lord. Salvation is of the Jews. The Messiah is a Jew. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is her salvation. And the one who gives living water of the new birth by the Holy Spirit will cleanse her and forgive her past can now all be put behind her. And we'll see in a couple of weeks the great joy and the transformation of her life as she understood these things. Some final lessons for us this morning. bit of a recap. First, everyone worships everyone. Those who are saved are to worship the true God. Those who are saved are to worship the true God truly, and those who are not worship false gods falsely. Not according to facts, not according to truth. They worship false gods. We should not be found in that com- company. We who are saved are to worship the true God truly. Second, true worshipers worship the true God truly. And it means this, a true worshiper has received new life by the Spirit of God. A true worshiper worships the one true God only in the power and the realm of his Holy Spirit by the truth of his word through his Son, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And you see the Trinitarian nature of this passage, worship the Father, the Son gives life, Jesus is the Messiah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worship is Trinitarian. With the human spirit engaged. When we come to worship on Sunday mornings, we come back again. Engage your mind and your spirit. Correspond to the Spirit of God. When you stand up, do it. With joy and gusto. When you sing, do it with your mind and your heart engaged. When you do, give, give so with, with, with great joy. When you listen to the, to the sermon, hear it with all of your being and obey it. That's how true worships, worshipers worship the true God truly. And God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you. For these glimpses into the life of Christ, we thank you for the way in which he showed such grace to those who are so far from you, and we ask that we might be like him. Beyond that, first and foremost this morning, may we be true worshipers who worship you truly.